1973, what's now known as Delaware Humanities was born, beginning its mission to strengthen communities across the state by connecting Delawareans through the diversity of human experiences. Now, five decades later, Delaware Humanities continues that work, promoting a respectful exchange of ideas to help the first state do its part to build a flourishing democracy. And to help celebrate these 50 years, we bring you 2023-1973 In Conversation, a podcast focused on the conversations Delaware Humanities has engaged in with Delawareans over the years and continues to encourage today in the first state. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And 2023-1973 In Conversation is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on 2023-1973 In Conversation as we celebrate 50 years of Delaware Humanities. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. In this second episode, we want to focus on a topic within one of Delaware Humanities' core concepts, health and environment, and discuss how that topic has developed over the past 50 years. The topic we're zeroing in on is African-American women in medicine. Last year, Delaware Humanities joined a successful effort to have Delaware's General Assembly recognize June 21st as Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler Day. Born in Delaware, Dr. Crumpler became the first black woman to earn a medical degree in the United States in 1864, a major accomplishment and milestone. But the barriers to women of color in medicine persist, with implications for the disparities in care we see today. To unpack these issues and how they've played out over the past 50 years, we are joined by University of Pennsylvania medical student Jasmine Brown, author of Twice as Hard, the stories of black women who fought to become physicians from the Civil War to the 21st century and Dr. Marshall Lee, Christiana Care Family Medicine Physician and Harrington Trust Physician Scholar in Christiana Care's Institute for Research on Equity and Community Health. Jasmine Brown, Dr. Marshall Lee, thank you so much for joining us on 2023-1973 In Conversation. We really do appreciate you taking some time to share your expertise and insight with us uh, on this episode of the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, thank you so much for, for the invitation. So uh, this podcast is is focused on the past 50 years as we celebrate 50 years of Delaware Humanities. But um, you both have a connection to Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler, who was the first black woman to earn a medical degree in the United States in 1864. Um, Jasmine, you talk about Dr. Crumpler's life and story in your book, Twice as Hard. Dr. Lee, you were part of the effort last year to create Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler Day here in Delaware. So I want to kind of start our conversation um, by just kind of asking you both how you see Dr. Crumpler's legacy fitting into what we're talking about today, which is the the barriers that black women face getting into the medical field and the implications of that um, as an ongoing issue. Yeah. So for me, as a current medical student and a black woman, I feel like her legacy is extremely important. When I was started my research that led to my book back when I was in Oxford, I was actually surprised that black women have been practicing medicine in the U.S. since the 1860s. Um, because growing up, like people would tell me like, oh, you're not smart enough to do like math or science and with going into medicine made to feel that I don't belong here. But then to learn about Dr. Rebecca Crumpler and all the black women physicians that have come since her, 
just realizing like, no, we've been here for a long time. We've earned our space and we do belong here. And Dr. Lee, we talked last year about Dr. Crumpler as the, the process was happening to, to create that Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler Day here in Delaware. Uh, and I, I recall you talking a little bit about some of the same things, that it, it really is a remarkable story uh, and a remarkable legacy that, that people really aren't truly aware of and maybe bec- finally becoming a little bit more aware of. Yes, um, in- indeed. Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler's name should be a um, household name. And it's a little disheartening that um, her legacy is now just coming to light. And so I was super impressed by all of the work that she did despite the professional obstacles that she faced. And her life has been a testament to my career and inspired me to continue to push forward. Um, If she could make it when she was able to endure the racism and sexism and other challenges, it helps me to overcome the barriers that I encounter as well. So Jasmine, moving forward in time, your book also obviously examines other figures uh, who have who followed the same path. Um, and I'm curious, um, what stood out to you as we look at the 50-year period that we're covering, 1973 to 2023, um, what has stood out to you in this 50-year period um, about the, the, the barriers that black women face getting into the field of medicine and, and being able to, to really um, you know, have what they do and what they offer um, celebrated in, in the field of, of medicine? Yeah, something that stood out to me is how some of the barriers that exist today were present 50 years ago. So one example is how affirmative action was made into law in the 1960s. Um, and since then, there are women in my book that speak about being in school and being told that they're only there because of affirmative action. They didn't actually earn their spot. Um, and that was something that I was told when I would get into medical school when I would get into undergrad, like, well, you're just there because you're Black. And so it was interesting to see what happened in law that then led to this new social barrier that has persisted since then. And Dr. Lee, is, is that somewhat disappointing that, that again, we, we, we can go all the way back to a, a Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler in, in the 1860s. And so now, and, and as Jasmine was saying, some of these same barriers persist but just in, in different forms. Yes, definitely. Professional barriers exist. We um, are continuing to work hard to not only be the best docs, but also multitask and be the best moms and family members to our loved ones. And so it's very inspiring um, to know the legacy that is ahead of us, that, that before us, um, but also knowing that there's so much more work to be done Hospitals weren't desegregated until the 1960s, 1964. And so there's a lot of focus on health disparities. But when you truly understand the roots of health disparities, um, how far we have come, it also shines a light on how much further we have to go to truly improve health equity in, in the United States. And I definitely want to delve into that in a little bit more, Dr. Lee, in just a little bit. But I also just want to give people a chance to hear from each of you personally about uh, your personal experiences in getting into the, the medical profession as a black woman and, and, and some of the experiences you had and, and you know, how that has informed kind of your, your trajectory in, in pursuing this career. 
Yeah, so I would say for me, having the dual perspective of being a physician in training um, and also seeing what it's like for myself, but more so for family members as being Black patients in the American medical system. As I mentioned before, um, people, even as young as elementary school, telling me what they felt like I wasn't capable of because of my identities, that definitely pushed me to want to prove them wrong, but also with seeing other um, Black classmates who I felt were just as intelligent, but faced different barriers, such as in high school, seeing my friends having to work jobs after school to help support their families, but how that impid- like was an impediment to their academic success, like motivating me to try to help to increase diversity within medicine and address some of these barriers that have led to the continued Black or um, the underrepresentation within medicine. And then on the other side of seeing what it's like as Black patients, sometimes being thought like, treated as if like they may not have a like large enough understanding of science to be told like a better picture of what's going on in their bodies or why different management plans are being sought after um, has made me really intentional through my training thus far. And like, how can I close that gap? How can I help to establish um, trust in my patients with the recognition of the harms that medicine has done and continues to do to the Black community and doing what I can to help to address some of the health disparities that continue to plague Black communities and communities of color in general. Dr. Lee, tell us a little bit about about your personal experiences and again, like Jasmine, how that has kind of informed how you've approached your career. Yes, thankfully, um, from an early age, I was exposed to sciences my mom was actually my high school science teacher and my grandmother was a registered nurse. So early on, I was exposed to the diverse array of health and medical careers. And um, initially I wanted to be a lawyer. I'm um, growing up in Mississippi. I always wonder why Mississippi was at the top of every bad list um, and at the bottom of every good list. And so law and policy were at the forefront of my mind. But thankfully during high school, my, my first job was as a medical scribe and um, a medical records clerk at a local hospital. And so I became more interested in health careers there and had great mentors at an early age that inspired me um, to pursue a medical um, career. And I knew that my career would have to lead me outside of the clinical arena in order to address the health disparities and policy changes that were necessary. So what I, from both of your perspectives, what are some of the things that, that can change for the better to help break down some of these barriers that black women face getting into the medical field? Dr. Lee, you just mentioned kind of having great mentors. Is that part of the equation? Or are there some other things that are institutionally and structurally that need to change to, to make things better? Yes, the power of mentoring cannot be understated. Um, you cannot be what you cannot see. And so I know that um, having strong women in my life who, um, even if they were not successful in their pursuit of um, pursuing medical degrees, that they inspired me and pushed me to succeeding. And so that is why I'm so passionate about mentoring the next generation of doctors, because mentoring and support of students in the pipeline really makes a difference. 
Jasmine, how about how about you? What what do you see as needing to change to to start breaking down some of these barriers? I would echo that as as a one major factor, and I actually saw that in my book, um, Dr. Johnson Elders. This is in the like 1950s. Her family were sharecroppers. The highest education level they had was eighth grade, but she did well in school and ended up getting a scholarship that allowed her to go to college. Um, but then when she got to college, her aspiration was to become a Dillard sales clerk because she felt like that would give her more financial stability than working the as a sharecropper. Then while she was at in college, she met Dr. Edith Irby Jones, who is actually the first Black person to integrate a medical school in the South. This was before Brown versus Board of Ed that required desegregation of schools. And Jocelyn said that this is the first doctor, regardless of like background, this is the first doctor she ever met. And Dr. Edith Irby Jones inspired her to become a physician herself. And she said the same thing. She said, you can't be what you can't see. Um, and Dr. Jocelyn Elders, she actually went on to becoming the first Black Surgeon General of the U.S. And so just thinking like all of that change, like that was the um, bridging point or the shift in her life when she met Dr. Edith Irby Jones. Um, and so how impactful that can be. And, and I can I see that in my own school and just learning about the statistics nationally of how the majority of medical students have a family member who's a physician themselves. And I feel like that points to the impact of mentorship and role models and guiding someone to this field that has so many boundaries, both financially and just the long journey it takes to get to this point. Um, also points to the hidden curriculum that people speak to of things that are not spoken about as outwardly, but ways, things that you have to do to successfully navigate the medical training um, and to be a successful physician. And so then having those mentors or role models to guide students and trainees on what they need to do, how do they need, what do they need to do to succeed in the hospital? What do they need to do to succeed on the big exams? Um, and so that's definitely a, a big factor that I've seen in myself and in my research. Another factor is the financial burden, which is also like points to with family members who are in medicine of the socioeconomic background of a lot of the medical students and trainees, because it's so expensive mm -hmm. to get through this, um, whether it be to apply to medical school, the number of schools people are, are expected to apply to, and be, besides COVID years, how much it costs to travel. Um, I've seen upwards of $10,000 just to apply. And then medical school itself, can cost up to like $400,000. And so for somebody who comes from a like lower income family background, that price tag, middle income, like that price tag can feel really daunting and could be a deterrent, even if they have like great empathy skills, a great passion for medicine and science and could be an incredible physician. Um, and so I, I would say that that's another major barrier that interestingly in my work, I saw 
um, at the turn of the 20th century, it was like an intentional thing that they placed these barriers um, with within the medical training path so that it was more wealthier students that were able to become physicians. And it was a part of the medical institution's attempts to raise the prestige of medicine because at that time, medicine wasn't viewed as highly. Like we didn't have the same scientific knowledge we have now. We didn't have the same like surgical methods that are that we have today. And so I remember um, one article that I was reading, this person said that men who become doctors are the ones who weren't smart enough to become lawyers. Um, this was like a, a piece from like the late 1800s, but it was really shocking to me given the like social capital that medicine has now, but that was literally intentional that at the turn of the 20th century, they put in certain requirements to entry into medical school such that it was only the higher class um, people, more upper class people that were able to enter um, to raise the status. And at the same time, that was when they were putting in structural barriers to make it difficult for women and black people to enter. Um, with the Flexner Report of 1910, that report closed all women's medical schools, which then they forced the larger traditionally male-only medical schools to accept women. And then they closed all the two Black medical schools. And Abraham Flexner, the one who wrote the report, said that Black physicians should only be treating Black patients and the fewer Black doctors, the better. Um, and after that point, the representation of Black physicians was stagnant for almost 100 years. In 1910, 2.5% of all doctors were Black. And then in 2006, 2.2% of all doctors were Black. Um, and it was just that shift in getting rid of all these medical schools. And as we talk about the barriers for Black women, when they allowed women into the other medical schools, they had a cap, um, according to the women in my book. Um, maybe it was an unofficial cap, but they mm -hmm. like limited how many women they accepted into those schools and almost exclusively only letting white women in. And so then creating this bottleneck for aspiring Black physicians, aspiring Black women physicians um, for where they could train. And that's had long-lasting implications on the representation of physicians. And I guess there's implications as well then in terms of the Black community engaging with healthcare and feeling comfortable engaging with their doctors or in general with the medical field and, and healthcare. How, how important is that you know, that those limitations that were created way back then, you still kind of feeling the echoes of, of that now in terms of, as we talked a little bit earlier, Dr. Lee, I think you alluded to kind of the disparities that it kind of creates in, in the care and the, both the access and, and the quality and the engagement with the, the care that, that, that people get. Yes, research has shown that when patients um, receive care from a doctor of a similar racial ethnic background, they report um, not only having greater satisfaction, but there have also been studies and research that show that when Black doctors care for Black patients, that they also have a higher 
quality of care and better outcomes. Um, there have been studies that have shown that Black babies have better outcomes with that when they are cared by Black doctors, and the list really goes on. And so we have um, not just stories that support the importance of a diversifying the workforce, but also there is data and research that shows and supports the importance of diversifying the health workforce as well. And, and Dr. Lee, does that specifically play out in very specific areas you mentioned? And these, these are issues we, we hear about regularly, uh, black maternal care, uh, sickle cell. I mean, does it, do we see that in, very, in some, you know, obviously we see it in general, but are there some very specific areas where it has a, an impact that really does hurt people uh, significantly in the black community? Definitely. It really is really generalizable. Um, there was research recently um, released this year that showed that um, black people that live in communities that have more black doctors, the life expectancy is much higher. So not only when the doctors are providing the medical care um, to those patients, um, there is an increase in life expectancy. But even when the patients aren't the direct patients of those doctors, we know that the communities tend to be healthier. Um, the doctors, as a black doctor, I just don't provide care to my patients in the community. But oftentimes we practice in under-resourced areas, but also we are typically pillars in the community and provide additional outreach to churches and other community settings. And so that data really highlights that fact. So when black patients just live in the same communities that are occupied by a majority or more black doctors, their life expectancy is higher, which really is a testament to all of the extra work that we do in our community supporting um, their health as well. And I would imagine that's important when you talk about, you know, you mentioned being being seen in the community, being pillars of the community, uh, churches and other, but also I, I would imagine schools are a big part of that as well, that making sure that the children in schools are getting the care that they need and they're, and they're seeing it from, as you said, a, a face that, that they, they recognize and are comfortable with. Yes. Healthcare in schools is so very important and is the most fulfilling portion of my job. I have the pleasure of serving as a physician at a local elementary school. And so not only are we able to provide good preventative care to start our students off on the right course at life, but we're able to provide that mentoring. At the end of every one of my visits, um, after I provide great care to my students, my um, last question is, um, you want to be a doctor or nurse when you grow up, right? And the majority of them smile and say yes. And so I'm hopeful that um, they learn early on by seeing a black doctor that they can also become one as well. I'm curious, we, we, we've talked about some of these issues and you know, looking for ways to, to break these barriers down and, and make things better. Where, where can you know, a humanities organization like Delaware Humanities or other people outside the medical profession help in this process and uh, in, in engage in some way that, that perhaps uh, moves the ball in the right direction um, and, and, and builds this diversity that, that you've both been speaking about? I feel like something that a humanities organization or just non-medical providers can do is sharing these stories because they're, even today, there's still a relatively small number of Black physicians in the U.S. And so they or we can't do all of the work. Um, and I think that one really harmful aspect that happens at a young age are these false narratives of 
what are Black children capable of achieving? How high should they aspire? Um, and so by sharing these stories of these trailblazers, of these role models, it's a way to touch that community, even if there isn't a Black physician nearby. And and I can even speak for myself. Like I had, my parents were are in like the STEM space. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any physicians in my family. And doing this research was actually the first time that I met a Black woman physician. Um, and was the first time I learned about them because I wasn't learning about them. I didn't learn about them in primary school um, or secondary school. I didn't learn about them in college. Even when I was at Oxford doing this graduate degree in history of medicine, I wasn't learning about the stories of Black women physicians. Um, And so I think when a kid is hearing these negative narratives of, oh, you're not smart, you can't do well in math and science, it's much harder to, they have much less weight when you know this long and powerful legacy. Um, But when you don't hear these stories and we're only reinforcing um, the stories in my history program, they would say of like old white men, essentially. Um, then it reinforces the narrative of like, well, I don't want to believe what these kids are saying, but who can I look to to show me that that's not true? Um, so I think that is one important thing that especially a humanities program can do of sharing the stories. Dr. Lee, how about yourself? How do you feel, again, whether it be a humanities organization like Delaware Humanities or, or other people uh, outside of the medical field in, in the healthcare field uh, can help break down some of these barriers? Yes, I agree. It's so important that we continue to share stories of trailblazers that came before us. I remember growing up, um, I had a book on my bookshelf about Marie Curie. And so she was a scientist um, not a black woman scientist, but at least early on, I could see myself in her, and um, it helped me to um, um, think about a career in the sciences and STEM early on as well. So sharing the stories of other black um, and brown physician trailblazers is so very important. But I also think it's important that we learn from our history in regards to health disparities. Um, oftentimes, we um, see these issues today as contemporary issues, COVID-19 not really understanding how um, we were already set up for many of the social barriers and challenges that um, made a perfect equation for the outcomes that we had in COVID-19, but really helping us to understand how the history of medicine was built and unfortunately, in some ways intentionally built um, to serve um, that resulted in the outcomes that we have today. And so helping to tell that story, learning from those stories, so that we can really improve things for the future would also be very impactful. Doctor, it would also be helpful for people to, to pay attention to social determinants of health, some of the other issues that surround uh, these issues, these, these medical disparities, and create and, and perpetuate or make worse these disparities. Definitely. Understanding the social determinants of health, um, redlining, housing, we know that all of those factors go hand in hand with um, health outcomes, and it's definitely important to um, understand the history and legacy and how we are where we are today. We've talked a lot today, and the show is a lot about history and looking back over the course of 50 years and beyond. I want you each maybe to finish up by looking a little bit ahead. And, and, and what, what for you, if you look ahead 25, 50 years, would, would 
be success in your mind for breaking these barriers down? What would things look like in 25, 50 years if, if this issue is addressed properly and in a way that, that you feel can really break these barriers down effectively? For me, success would be in, um, in 20 years that we all have access to high quality health care um, that is racially and ethnically concordant um, for each individual to receive um, the best outcomes necessary. And not only just health care, but also has the social supports necessary um, to live their healthiest lives possible. Jasmine, how about you? I feel like some of the reasons for the health disparities that we see today are because there were policies or medical management pathways that were created decades or more in the past when these biases were people weren't ashamed to express them express them such as abraham crumpler i mean abraham flexner saying how he felt that there shouldn't be that many black physicians and then his view not too long after slavery having an impact on medicine over a century later we see some of the medical calculations that affect who gets a transplant who gets certain medications taking into account race with this bias perspective one of them is a kidney marker for instance that's starting to get some attention and there there are some initiatives to get rid of it now but for a long time and still in some cases today we use race in our calculator for kidney function and a black person has to have worse kidney markers in order to be eligible for a transplant compared to someone who isn't black based off this idea that black people are more muscular and thus they'll have more protein that is being excreted from their kidneys that would indicate worse kidney function um that's not founded in fact. First of all, race is a social construct. We don't have the same biologic like differences. All black people look this way, all white people look this way in terms of muscular build um, and other biologic features. But because of those biases that were ingrained into our medical practices, they have perpetuated these disparities even when there are many physicians of various backgrounds who want to close the gap. And so I think being more intentional to like inspect what are aspects of the structure and the way that medicine is practiced that was put in place in the past that are perpetuating these issues. If we can get rid of some of those, I think it will make a big difference. Jasmine Brown author of Twice as Hard, the stories of black women who fought to become physicians from the Civil War to the 21st century. And Christiana Cares, Dr. Marshall and Lee, thank you so much for being with us on 2023-1973 In Conversation. And a quick note, if you want to hear more from Jasmine Brown about her book, Twice as Hard, she will be participating in this year's History Book Festival in Lewis that runs from September 29th through October 1st. You want to put that on your calendar. Again, thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks for listening to this episode of 2023-1973 In Conversation. 
This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. 2023-1973 In Conversation is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.